Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Tara Talk. Hi, everyone. This is Tara Talk. My name is Shannon. Hi. Hi there. I'm Kathy, if you forgot. <laughs> Who are you again? I haven't seen you in so long that, I know. you know. Here we are, in person with social distancing in place. She's all the way down the hallway. Um, not really, just the other end of the room. So today on the show, we're going to talk about the mo- the 2010 movie called We Need to Talk About Kevin. It's a psychological thriller. It's based on the novel, the 2003 novel by Lionel Shriver. It's directed by Lynn Ramsey, who's done a couple of really other stunning titles that I love that we'll talk about later. Um, it's starring Tilda Swinton, John C. Riley, and Ezra Miller. I'll never look at Ezra Miller the same, by the way. When I, I watched um, Perks of Being a Wallflower, I yeah. just all I saw was Kevin. Yeah, Kevin is a startling, <clears throat> unforgettable character. I almost wonder why we don't see him that much anymore, if that has anything to do with it. Because yeah, he's a know. really good actor. Like he doesn't want to play bad guys anymore. No, like or he's typecast. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so this is this is a movie that is widely known in shrink circles as a basically a, a biopic on the making of a psychopath. Really, um, the making or the birth of a psychopath, and that's the interesting conversation that this movie will ultimately lead us to, possibly because it's done really well. So. Just in general, so you have kind of an orientation to this movie is that the movie follows two different timelines. Uh, One where Ava, the mother, um, lives in this like crappy house, works for this crappy travel agency and is kind of grieving a life that she that she had. I'll put it that way. We'll get in. We're going to dig into this. So don't worry. But so there's one time that one timeline. And then there's a second timeline of Ava, this, who's played by Tilda Swinton, Ava's memory of her son's life from birth to the present time. And then by the end of the movie, the two timelines are in the same moment, but really only for a moment. <laughs> they just they collide right at the end for like the last scene or two. So you're going back and forth. I would say about this movie that not only is it interesting subject matter for people who would listen to our show, but it's also um, this filmmaker is incredibly atmospheric, right? Like it's got a mood. Mm -hmm. The movie's got a mood. We were going to start with talking about Kevin, who's starts out in this one timeline as a baby and kind of like what we see in Kevin as a baby. Is that a good place to start? Yeah. I I have such a reaction to this movie. (laughs) You did. Well, you know, shocker, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what was your reaction to this movie? Well, when you brought it up uh, a couple weeks ago, when you said, we, we really should talk about Kevin. (laughs) Um, And my first thought was, Oh my God, I'm gonna have to sit through that and watch that again. And, and, And it's incredibly well done. So well done that you actually, feel like you're looking through someone's window mm-hmm. and watching something real. Um, so you, I had to mentally and emotionally prep to sit through it again, because I remember the first time I watched it, I said to myself, that was amazing. 
I am never going to sit through that again. <laughs> Actually, her reaction when I said I'd like to do an episode on We Need to Talk About Kevin, her reaction, because, you know, she's nothing if not reactionary. She goes, oh, <laughs> there was like this audible sigh. Luckily, she was six feet away. So it was like, oh, it's such a it's so incredibly well done. Yeah. And then you looked at me and you, you said, yeah, OK, I know. I know. It's, I know. It, it would be a really good episode. OK, we have to do it. <laughs> Anyway, um, so tell us more about, so then you actually did sit down and, and I just know I was getting texts over the last two weeks of you like, I got 15 more minutes through. Yeah, I, I would watch <laughs> it like the first time I sat down, I think I watched the first 40 minutes. It's about an hour and 45 minutes long. Yeah. Um, and then the, I think then I watched like 30 minutes and then mm -hmm. 20, 20, like it, it, because. You got <clears> slower <throat> as you went. <laughs> there, there are no, there's no reprieve or breaks in this movie to to get your bearings back and no. um you are in it from beginning to end and it is tense and it is emotional and i because i hadn't seen it in a long time there were certain things that i i'm like oh god i think this is coming next but i'm not sure so i found myself like really preparing to sit through a scene that i kn knew was going to be incredibly uncomfortable um and painful so so <laughs> big sigh. <laughs> um, I, I don't have that reaction to this movie just to give another side to things. Cause I'm sure our listeners are all, all over the spectrum with movie going or movie watching. I definitely agree that there's no, there's no like comic relief. There's no break from the tension. It's definitely crafted in a way that builds and builds and builds. And, um, although you know kind of what's coming, at least as a mental health person, <laughs> you definitely know what's coming. Um, you, it's, it's just, yeah, it's tense. And, and I don't have the reaction of needing to, you know, I've had to do it with other things, but I don't have that reaction to this movie, but, um, I, I will, can I just say something real quick? Sure. I felt like the reason, well, there's two reasons why I feel that way when I watch it. One, I think they did a really good job at pulling you into the experience of the mother mm -hmm. and what she was going through and how she had to make decisions and what she had to carry every day and what she knew and, and how alone she felt in this. And then the flip side, not the flip side, but the other thing would be I've worked with families um, who have had family members who have killed family members and work through these cases and whether it was due to psychopathy or someone just had a mental illness and had a psychotic break and did something incredibly violent some of this resurfaced for resurfaces for me i think okay yeah fair so just be warned that um, we don't know what your reaction is going to be to it, you know, like what your exposure to certain things is and what you've internalized or ingested or your reactions to different things. You know, we all have different um, stuff that really gets under our skin. And so just keep that in mind if you're going to. I would recommend you watch this movie. It's a great movie. Um, it's definitely a great movie if you like psychological thrillers and it's a great movie if you're into studying mental illness. Um I wouldn't be surprised if any of our psych students haven't seen this in class. I mean, this would be a great sort of thing to to use in teaching. Um, yeah. 
I'm so actually, that said, I'm actually you know, teaching, trigger warnings. <laughs> I'm teaching psychopathology in the fall, and I may actually show clips yeah. of this. Yeah. It's great, and then have have people who are, tell don't tell them about this episode because we're going to reveal all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't know those students yet. So. I'm just teasing. Um, <laughs> you'll be like, and by the way, all the answers to the final are no. Um, so let's talk about Kevin as a baby. So this, like I've like I've said, and and Kathy was saying too, that this movie's from the mother's point of view. So you're not really in Kev, inside of Kevin's head, which actually I think would be a much more disturbing place to be Chaotic. if we were doing a movie. Much more like Requiem with a Dream type of type yeah. of vibe. Um, but this is not the that. This is through her POV, and so her her palpable depression and grief and all that is very much a piece of the, um, the atmosphere in my opinion. But so one of the, one of the storylines is tracking him since from a baby. And so, which starts out with a night of irresponsible sex, basically she gets knocked up Mm -hmm. and then they get married. Mm -hmm. That's not that linear, but that's what we figure out happens. (laughs) Yeah. The movie's not, entirely linear it's much more atmospheric so as a baby i mean the first thing you notice is that kevin doesn't stop crying it's yeah colicky temperamental and you can almost see her postpartum ish yeah right there's there's from the get-go she's really repulsed but also like wants to love him yeah i mean i think so for him you see him like crying desperately and constantly right and then you very quickly see her um frustration and loneliness really it's really that's, lonely that's what i get through her character the whole time i think yeah. why it's so hard to watch her is she mm-hmm. is really alone in this yeah the loneliness is really palpable <clears throat> the the way the movie's crafted like the loneliness and the depression and the like weight of it is very it's very successfully done. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Um, and really well acted. Oh my gosh. Um, so you see him crying constantly. You see her being desperate. You also see him resisting potty training. Yeah. And almost mm-hmm. using, so in the field, you know, we have a term called encapresis, which just means that someone, uh, a child will, there's encapresis and then there's, um, it's the other one, Shannon. It's, uh, there's urinating and then there's defi- uh we'll get it. Yeah. Anyway, um he uses that as a control thing. Um mm-hmm. and he does it on purpose where he'll soil himself, which is in some studies actually correlated to psychopathy yeah. in some studies. Um but there's there's an element of that um just defiance really early on and his ability. And then, you know, the scene where he then successfully uses because, <laughs> and I think they're, they're trying to let the audience know he's clearly doing this as a control thing. And he knows it upsets her. He reads her very early on mm-hmm. and he learns to manipulate her very early on and test her responses early on, which psychopaths master um, what makes people tick. Do you remember the scene with the ball? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a scene with the ball where he he really learns how to read her where he's pushing the they're pushing the ball back and forth. That kid who plays Kevin at that age mm-hmm. is so frightening. The eyes, the yeah, whole he's, just they really well. The whole movie's really well cast, but yeah, he's just There's three different actors that play Kevin. He's creepy as fuck. <laughs> 
Let's yeah. put it that way. But to get a child, almost like that Damien from the Omen sort yeah. of, right? Um, but he learned what, what I... What I think is really interesting about these scenes at the beginning is you watch how he learns to read her emotions and how he very early on learns how to use it against her, Mm -hmm. which is what psychopaths are really good at doing. That's right. Yeah. Um, The other thing you see is that he rejects affection. And euresis. Sorry, that was the other word. Yeah, encopresis is poop. Yeah. Um, So... So like I said, so crying constantly, resisting potty training, having an issue with potty training is something that we see a lot. Um, uh, A lack of frustration tolerance as a baby and inability to self-soothe is basically what you're seeing, like all the crying. And she's not soothing him and she's got postpartum, so she's not mirroring him and giving him all that good attachment as a baby. Um, but he's that way from the get-go. He's unhappy. So this is all, this starts, and this is definitely a movie about that discussion of nature and nurture. I think um, one of the things we see, too, which is quintessential, is early on, um, no punishment or discipline really affects him or changes his behavior. We, yeah. we know in adolescence that happens, but really early on, we usually see if a child's disciplined or punished in some way that that will affect them. And he was incredibly unaffected by that. Yeah. Um, like, like you're saying, like we definitely see that when they're teenagers, but that the, the symptom of pathology that we're talking about is the no regrets piece. So he really has no regrets as a kid. He just <laughs> mm-hmm. does his thing and, and manipulates and, um, poops or doesn't poop pees or doesn't pee you know whenever he freaking wants to basically and he rejects affection from her uh, uh, almost entirely not entirely but almost entirely Mm -hmm. um is there any other baby small child symptoms that really stand out to you um he's not overtly aggressive but he's Mm -hmm. already starting to show that defiance very early on. Well, um, yeah, yeah. It's that like, um, the, uh, the thing that we see in psycho passages is like the, one of the things, one of the ways it can go, which we've talked about in like our true crime shows is like the sadistic personality. So the personality that knows the rules, knows how to get under your skin and humiliates you and controls you at every stop. And he does that to her as like a five-year-old. He he uses a combination of intimidation and humiliation because there are early scenes, even during the potty training thing, where it's almost like he's laughing at her, watching how dad is buying into how innocent he is. And she he loves to watch how much that upsets her and he's like five years old doing this yeah it's all about her and him yeah you know the dad is like really clueless and is always gaslighting his wife you know yep. they're like i don't know what you're talking about because <laughs> kevin knows to play a very different yep side he, he plays a part and so then that that gets you into the part of um that key thing of they know the rules so that's that difference with psychopathy, right? Like they know the rules and they're manipulating and humiliating and breaking them and and orchestrating as opposed to someone who is, you know, uh, and not in touch with reality and doesn't know there there's any rules to break and is just kind of all over the place and mentally in a totally different way. Yeah. I think when we look at oppositional children, 
if you look at like oppositional defiant disorder, right, which sometimes coincides like mm-hmm. ADHD and anxiety, it's like not wanting to listen to authority, they need to be in control. A lot of that's like comes from anxiety and inability to hold attention. An oppositional child is more impulsive and defiant, where a psychopathic child is oppositional and premeditated. Mm-hmm. So there is there is impulse control. They just choose to not use it. Yeah. But they know mm-hmm. versus, and this is why I think a lot of times early on and why it's so difficult to diagnose um, or why a lot of times doctors are afraid to go to these places is because it it can be uncertain at, at early on, can this child control this or not? Mm-hmm. And so when you see kids who are oppositional, a lot of times they just have no impulse control. They're all over the map. This is different. Well, and this kid would have never shown anybody except his mother. That's right. He could control it. We would, you, me, whatever. Like, I have no illusion about me being the all mythical person that could source this out. I mean, yes, some kids you can tell. And Kathy and I both have stories about that where, like, we've met kids where, like, oh, this is where it's going. But this kid, not at all. This kid would not have let anybody know. He would have fooled everyone. Mm -hmm. And he did fool everyone. Mm -hmm. So... We're not, we're not pretending to know that we would be able to. <laughs> we talk about this in, in others. Uh, we've talked about this in other episodes where maybe during the Joker episode, I can't remember, but we, we've, you and I, have, we've talked about how if someone truly is mm-hmm. mentally ill versus characterologically ill, yeah. okay, so someone has like a an organic, I don't know, schizophrenia or whatever, you're going to see that across all domains, home, school, work, therapy, they're not going to just be able to turn it on and turn it off for their convenience. Like a Ramirez. That's right. This kid turned it on and off. Yeah. Yep. And that's psychopathy. The yeah. psychopaths can do that. Because, again, I'll just throw it out there as, like, the symptomology in a concrete way. It's like they know the rules of society and they're breaking them. And then a mentally ill person doesn't necessarily know what the rules are or if there's rules or what have you. Or they're just disorganized. Exactly. They're just, yeah. Which is kind of the very definition of disorganized. This is like not linear. I don't know how to, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't know, you know, round, you know, square in a round hole or whatever. Um, and of course he presents with a reduced um, empathy for others. <laughs> mm-hmm. He doesn't, he, I think, I, I think, when he's a kid, he's playing all these games and he's doing all this manipulation and control. But I also think in the base of it, he doesn't understand his mother. Like he doesn't get it. Like he doesn't have any concept of like who she is and what's going on with her. And he plays these games with her to see her reaction. And then he kind of looks at her like, like a psychopath will, will like look at you with like curiosity. Like I don't really sort of get it. She's an object. There's definitely not. um... It's like a, like a, like a rat with a, bird or something i mean not rats yeah and birds, no so. but, but like yeah. her his prey yeah yeah way. yeah prey yeah mm-hmm. um maybe a bird with a bug a rat and a bird what am i doing i, I don't know you're just okay. throwing out random animals <laughs> <laughs> anyway um what else about as a kid it, well you know one of the things that we i guess we can just introduce the concept of conduct disorder a little yeah, bit what that is that. so Conduct disorder is a group of behavioral and emotional problems that we will typically start to see during childhood, sometimes adolescence. If it starts in childhood, 
there's definitely a, a poorer prognosis. Um, and the reason for that is sometimes if it starts in adolescence, it could just be a time in their life. Because we didn't see it before, It's it, there's a, a better chance that it could go away after mm-hmm. versus someone who's always displayed this from day one. So children and adolescents with the disorder have a difficult time following rules and basically behaving in pro-social ways, socially acceptable ways. So they may they might display aggression. Um, they can be destructive. They're certainly deceitful. They violate the rights of other people. It will often proceed. It does proceed antisocial personality disorder. And oftentimes, if there's a childhood onset, it will transition transition into antisocial personality disorder. And then when we look at what psychopathy is, psychopathy is its own category in APD, which is a subcategory that it's almost like APD on, you know, on fire. Um, and we'll talk about that later. But childhood onset occurs before the age of 10. So we definitely saw this right out the gate with him, <laughs> right? That's for sure. And so some of the aggressive conduct might include like intimidating or bullying others, which he sh- he did show. Physically harming people or animals, he showed that a little bit later in his adolescence, but you start to see it early on. He messes with his sister. Um, it could lead to things like committing rape, using weapons. Deceit may include like lying, breaking, entering, stealing. Um, they could destroy other people's property, but there's definitely like a violation of rules. Could be skipping school, running away, drug and alcohol use, sexual behavior, behavior at a very young age. Boys technically display more aggression and destructive behavior than girls. Girls can be more prone to deceitful and rule-violating behavior. However, that's not always the case. Mm -mm. Girls can certainly be physically aggressive, and we did see how deceitful and rule-violating he was. He wasn't overtly aggressive through the whole thing. No. Um, So that, I, I think it's safe to say that he certainly was a conduct disordered kid. Absolutely. And just so everyone knows, it's like, you know, ODD is sometimes the start, oppositional defiant disorder. Then sometimes that's conduct disorder when there's a little bit of age, like as a teenager. And then for cases that are absolutely correctly diagnosed as conduct disorder and skew towards the very bad spectrum, that turns into not always, but sometimes turns into any social disorder mm-hmm. when someone's an adult. And, you know, it's an interesting thing, right, Kathy? Because sometimes when we see these kids, we kind of know where it's going. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't want to get so full of ourselves in a narcissistic way that we think like, oh, this kid's definitely going to be X, Y, Z. But there's a flavor There's a flavor if you've seen it enough times. And so it's sometimes it's difficult to get that out of your head when you're working with a kid or with a family or um, supervising cases, as I do, where it's like, I don't want to lead the team into like, yeah, there's no hope for this kid kind of thing. I don't want to go there because certainly it's a very hopeless mindset. And so I never, I really never tip my hand of like, okay, this guy has, this kid has like, sociopathic at least sort of tendencies or got some markers let's put it that way and i and i don't do a lot of projecting that but i will say things like just everybody let's manage our expectations Mm -hmm. with the change of behavior you know like because the teams are 
well-meaning and want to really help families and are passionate about their work. And when we get to an end of a case and nothing's really changed, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard for them. And so I want to say like, let's listen, these, these, these traits might be more rigid and might take several years and let's manage our expectations about how much, you know, little Johnny's going to change. Um, so it's stuff like that. Absolutely. And I think it's really hard for a lot of people to see children in a way that, um, they are not innocent or they, you know, like if we talk about this in a clinical way and we start to even bring up the fact that this could be a static trait throughout their life, a lot of people, including some clinicians, will reject the idea that this is happening. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really difficult conversation to have with even people in the field. And I've had this in situations before of, where I'm seeing this and there, there's only a certain number of people on the treatment team that I can be incredibly transparent about of like, listen, if we don't intervene now and we don't get the prevention now, this could very much lead to antisocial behavior. And there was a, I've had some clients where I've referred them out to higher levels of care because they weren't going to thrive in a, one, in a private practice environment, but two, they needed a lot more containment and direction. And, um, but it's a difficult, it's definitely a difficult conversation to have. And I think some people, the question is, why? How does this happen? How does a child get here? And there's genetic causes, there's environmental causes, there's still a lot of studies that are being done surrounding this. Um, I will say that some of the environmental factors that could put kids at risk that they do know um, being male is definitely puts someone higher at risk. Um, and a, a, a history of child abuse, dysfunctional family patterns, parents who abuse drugs or alcohol, poverty. So not having access to resources. These are some of the environmental factors that could contribute to if the seed is already planted um, those stressors will bring it up to the surface much quicker than kids who have access to care and are more just attended to. Yeah. That's unfortunately why I see it a lot in my current job. For sure. Because we're, we're absolutely serving families who are um, mostly lower on the socioeconomic status. They're kids in the system mostly or on probation. So they're already, and they've, I, I'm not sure, there's maybe... It's a very high percentage of the kids that we see who have suffered some kind of trauma. So it's, it, mm -hmm. it's a really at-risk population for these symptoms. And it's sort of like chicken or the egg because you don't know if the trauma is what causes the brain damage or the yeah. brain damage is what causes because if you look at it from a genetic standpoint, there's studies that point to damage to the frontal lobe, which is where our impulse control is. And, and at a young age, we don't know how much of that's just developmentally appropriate. However, yeah. I think you and I can attest to it is very different when it is a, a conduct disorder case or a, a child whose their trajectory is heading this way. It goes beyond the normal impulse control of a kid this age. I think it's 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 heightened. It is. I mean, there, and the only way I can describe it, because I don't really want to say case specifics at the moment, <laughs> um, is that the behavior 
is a little bit like Kevin's in this. Kevin is really like textbooked, so we don't always see textbook cases, but the behavior the behavior is heightened. So whereas some kids with conduct disorder will destroy property, this is a kid who will, um, you know, wait for you mm-hmm. and then wait for you to be looking at them and then break your doll in front of them. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's got the, it's got a different, see how that has a different flavor than like a kid just like impulsively breaking right. shit when they're mad. It's sadistic. It's, it's more like you're going to stand in front of me and this is your favorite pen and mm-hmm. I'm going to break it and then I'm going to laugh. I'm going to torment you. I'm going to humiliate you. Yeah. So it's got yeah. a different vibe. to it. Mm-hmm. And until you're standing in front of it, it's hard to, it's hard to know. Like, there's a feeling that is comes up in you as well. Yeah. So, agreed. Uh, I think we should take a break. Let's take a break. Let's take a break from all the killing <laughs> um, and the badness. And then we'll be back. We're going to talk more about Kevin's um, teenage presentation and oh what, what ensues. Yeah, oh, boy. And what ensues in the movie as well as what happens for mom and how those are good backdrops for this conversation. So we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. We're back. We need to talk about Kevin. Ugh. Is the mo- <laughs> She makes a big <laughs> sigh every time. <laughs> I seriously think it's why Ezra Miller has not really worked. He was so <laughs> believable in this role. He was good. Um, and and nuanced and there's very little dialogue so uh there's really very little dialogue (laughs) in this movie it's very atmospheric um anywho so we're talking about we need to talk about kevin from 2010 uh who's main well not the main character i would say mom is the main character because she's the pov but the main kevin is a psychopath basically and we see the rearing of one um in a kind of a family drama, basically, until he is crazy and then, or psychopathic, I should say. So then he's a teenager. We talked about him as a kid, and then he becomes a teen. And there's another baby. There's a baby introduced. He has, she has a young girl, and so now Kevin has a younger sister. And I swear to God, as soon as she was pregnant and going to have another baby, and then it was girl, I was like... That girl is in for some oh, torture. She's gonna be tortured. As soon as they put introduce that plot, I'm like, this couldn't be any more textbook. Like, yeah. I, you know, it's not. And she was the sweetest, and she was so close with her. It was everything her mother wanted. I know. It's it just Kevin. Yeah, I just knew. I was like, ugh, that's when it turns for me. <laughs> like, oh god. Yeah, and because yeah. of that. Because of that, so the other symptoms we start to see in Kevin is the continued, so all the things we've already talked about continue, except for he does end up being potty trained, obviously. Um, He continues to reject affection. He continues to, like, humiliate and control and be really sadistic with his mother and hide things from his father and somewhat his sister. Um, Not that she would understand anyway, because she's um, several years younger. The no regrets, the reduced empathy, the all of that is still in place, right? So then we add, he kills the family pet. The little guinea pig. Yeah, so the, his sister has a guinea pig. And again, this is not a movie where you see him slaughter a guinea pig. This is a movie about suggestion. And so you in it's inferred 
the guinea pig goes missing. And then there's lots of plaintive looks between mom and Kevin and, you know, you get it. So there isn't an overt violence in this movie. It's much, and I think that's why it's really effective is because it is a psychological thriller. So it's not a horror movie. It's not a gore movie. It's much more. And you know, it's coming the second she gets the guinea pig. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. There's no other reason to show a guinea pig in a movie. I mean, I can't even imagine like any reason anybody watching this movie, although I have to entertain the idea that people could watch this movie and not know that these things are coming because they just mm-hmm. don't know enough about the like characterology of this character. What? What is that word? So he kills the guinea pig, which is sad. And then he also pokes his sister's eye out. That scene there's a scene after he busts her eye mm-hmm. uh, to the point where when Shannon says pokes her eye out, literally the eye is gone. Mom has to repat, like clean it out. That scene with the Q-tips wall. Um, but the scene where they're sitting at dinner mm-hmm. and it's just Kevin and mom and dad. Yeah. I know exactly the scene you're talking about. <sighs> and mom, mom's trying to, get some help from dad in the scene. Like I need, I need you to support me in talking to him about what really happened. And, um, at the same time, she's unsure of what she wants to say. And dad is like, your mom has something she wants to talk to you about. And she kind of looks at him like, you son of a bitch, like you're (laughs) going to put this on me because up until this point, um, and even all the way till the end, he, like we've said, he has completely, pulled the wool over his father's eyes. He's empathic with dad, you know, fault superficially, mm-hmm. um, thanks him for his, his bow and arrow, which will be the irony of this whole film, um, that he gets for Christmas. And then, so the scene anyway is after the, the eye gets busted and, and mom says something like, you know, we just, we, we want to talk to you about this incident. And dad automatically chimes in and says, we don't want you to think it's your fault. And his callousness of, why would I believe it? Why why would... He says, what are you talking about? Yeah, what are you talking about? Why would you think, I would think, why would it be my fault? Why would it be my fault? (laughs) And just the, that, you have to watch it to feel the essence of how creepy and empty and psychopathic that moment is. Well, and the, the filmmaker does this really cool thing where she has him eating a piece of juicy fruit that looks like an eyeball. It's like a kumquat or something. Yeah, he peels it. She's got close-ups. It's obviously a metaphor. It's like an eyeball. He's torturing yeah. them. He's torturing specifically his mother with creating this juicy, like, looking eyeball fruit and then eating it. And then there's these close-ups of his mouth, like, sucking and chomping on this eyeball. So there's an interesting... <laughs> but do you remember, too, in that moment, she said, I don't know why you like those things and he says it's an acquired taste yeah 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 there's another quote that he says at one point i don't know if it's the scene or another but he says there is there is no point that's the point yes with the when she why do you have those things when he has the cds that cause the viruses yeah yeah and he's like oh there there is is no no point point. that's That's the the point point. yeah yeah because cause, cause life is really pointless to him. Like There is nothing. So there's another thing that he says. Like I said, there's very little dialogue. So I cued into like anything he actually says that's of any importance that, that like like shows his character is there's a um, there's one scene where somebody says something and he says, what personality? 
she says something like, you know, you got to like look at your personality and the thing, you know, she's talking rationally and he says, what personality? Mm-hmm. Like about himself. Mm-hmm. And that's where I got the, the thing that we know, which is, or that we've seen a lot is that there's an emptiness. There's an empty shell of a self there. And it, that is such an amazing moment where he just says, what personality? Like truly befuddled, like, wait a minute, what? I don't have a personality. Like mm-hmm. I'm empty. Mm-hmm. There's no point. I'm empty. There is no me. He just makes a game out of life. He's not attached to anything. He's not, he's just, yeah. And that's and the inside of a psychopath, in my opinion. Needing that thrill because they're, there's nothing. It's just so dull. It, there's nothing there. There's So it just shows you human nature and how if you have empathy and you care for things and you're passionate about things and you care about people and 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 the way the world is and all of that, like that is what humanity is. That mm-hmm. is what existence is in reality. And when you have none of that and you don't care about anything, you don't understand people or anything. Your artificial intelligence. Yeah, it's it's... I could, there is no point. That's the point. Like there is no point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, the scene where mom takes him to dinner. Yeah. is a good scene too, where he's just like, what are you going to ask me about school? And then you're going to ask me. And he has, he plays out this whole dialogue of let's just cut the shit. Like there is nothing to talk about. Yeah. Like let's stop pretending like there's a relationship here. Mm-hmm. Because, and what he's really saying and what he's really trying to pull from her, which he is all the way to the end is, can you just fucking tell me you hate me? Yeah, because then that would be egosystonic, right? It would mm-hmm. match how he feels inside. But, and, and I think as at like the filmmaker, that is so cool because she's showing us the scene where he finally says, like, can we please cut the shit? Like, stop trying to be motherly to me. And that matches the other timeline that we've been watching where he, she's been going to visit him at prison and she's been, they just sit there and, and they don't even look at each other mm-hmm. for the time period. They don't even speak. And that's real. Like that's the true relationship is they don't have anything to say to each other. And she just goes out of like a responsibility to go. I think she still has hope and she's like waiting for him to say something. I just, I just think there's from, um, I'm not a mother, so I can't say, but I would, I would say knowing because my, my mother's lost a child and we've, we've just talked about like where mothers are able to go emotionally. I've never had a psychopath in my family as far as I know, but just mothers have, um, this ability at times, sometimes they're even blinded by their children. I would say that she's completely conflicted because he has destroyed her life, Mm -hmm. but she also created him. Yeah. I mean, there's all this regret and grief over it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, depression, shame, because the other timeline that we haven't really spoken to about too much until now is that the timeline is that she's in the house. Um, okay, so let's do the end, and then we'll get to this other timeline that will, that'll make a little bit more sense. So he kills the guinea pig. He kills, he pokes his sister, etc. And then there's this like very dramatic scene where the bow and arrow that his well-meaning, like really out-to-lunch father bought and taught him to use ends up being the tool of destruction that he ultimately has um, 
uh, a multiple murder, like a killing spree. Yeah, at <laughs> school, he takes he takes um, he takes the bow and arrow. He locks up the gym, and again, you don't see any of this violence. I want to make that really clear. This is all psychological terror for the audience and for the people in the movie. You see him locking the door. That's it. Yeah, and, and setting up his bow and arrow. Yeah, and then, and then mom um, getting a call. Doesn't Kevin go to blah blah blah? Yeah, and then she goes home after she realizes what has happened. In shock, she goes home and she finds her daughter and her husband um, killed by a bow and arrow. So he did what we see over and over again with this type of personality: is that they he, he killed it was a you know killed his family, and then killed um, teachers and students at school, and you know. He executes this multiple murder, um, and then there, you know, he he has always been. The ending is in line with who he is. In other words, he has always been. He was never going to kill his mother because he's cruel to his mother. And so, what's the ultimate cruelty? The ultimate cruelty is leaving his mother living in rejection with no family in her own personal hell and grief. It's like her own personal hell. She, these evangelical people come up to the door one time and you know, they say, do you know where you're going to go when you die? And she goes, yes, straight to hell. I'm going straight to hell, (laughs) which she says facetiously, but it's like, she's already living in hell. So yeah. So the other timeline is her after the murders and we're from the very beginning of the movie, you're seeing that timeline and this linear timeline that we just took you through. Now you're also going back and forth with her living afterwards with her son being a psychopath and in prison and having killed people in this community. So it's pretty riveting, the timeline of her having to live in this and, ev- and everyone just hating her. She gets slapped she at the grocery so store. Sti- and, and remember the guy that comes up and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And she goes, don't worry about it. Like she's just become so accustomed to owning mm-hmm. what her son did and living. She might as well be wearing like a scarlet letter mm-hmm. because everyone just, and, and it's, it, it's, this is how society is. They know nothing about her. They know nothing about her story. And they use her as this canvas to like vomit their own. People are so cruel to oh her. Oh my god! I mean, she gets the the was it the tomatoes or whatever on the the paint, whatever they Red use on the house. Paint on the house. There's a coworker that like comes on to her, and then when she rejects him, he just who's gonna want you now? He just cuts her down, and mm. it's it's pretty bad. So it's inner. So this is why we know, like the loneliness and the shame and the depression. All this is because she's drinking and you know you're just seeing this timeline of what happened after and then slowly learning what kevin did because you're if you don't know the story you're like well the why dr- is this woman the way she is the director i mean that was so effective the Very. way that she because sometimes multiple timelines can be really confusing mm-hmm. but in this way it was so effective in you already knowing this pain before you know the story you know something really terrible mm-hmm. has happened and she is alone yeah which means Everything that you're seeing in the past is now gone for some reason, and we know it's tied to him, but we don't yet know how bad it gets. Yeah, and then once you sort of learn everything that happens, it's like just this, like, ugh, oh God, no wonder. But you're also so this, so I know we want to have partly a conversation about mothers and sons, right? And like nature and nurture. And I mean, this mother and son relationship really represents like everything that's ugly. It's like, it's like, 
Um, she gets knocked up. She's um, you can you could if you wanted to see it and and there it it's on purpose in the movie is like she presents as not really loving enough. She re- represents as like a little bit quick to anger that she's more focused on herself that she's had irresponsible sex. So there's like there's this piece of it that you're because I believe that the filmmaker wants you to look at it like. Yes, this kid was the this way from the beginning, but yes, there were like mom problems too. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that I think makes it an interesting psychological study, like from a student perspective or from like a discussion perspective is that we talk a lot on the show in our especially in our true crime psychology series about you know, what did the family do to fuck this guy up? Mm-hmm. But wait, was he like that from birth? Mm-hmm. And then that discussion and how we don't get to really know. Like, there's no black and white, like, answer to that. No, there's not. We don't know how much maternal stress she had when she was carrying him because of the way that she became pregnant. Mm-hmm. And there, I mean, you could tell that their marriage was, yeah. I mean, yeah. He was, like you said, out to lunch is the best way to describe him. John C. Riley was really great. He was one. really he good. Serious. He did another serious movie with. Jennifer Aniston a while back Mm -hmm. um, where he plays the out to lunch husband too. Um, (laughs) Speaking of typecast. But he is um, really great in these roles because he plays this pathetic kind of, I don't know, gullible, means well, but making things worse kind of guy. Yeah, Uh, he just doesn't believe it. And I I see that a lot of times in parents where they just go like, well, if we just get him involved in some more activities, it'll be fine. Like the scene where where she's reading the story to him when he's a kid and and dad walks in. He's like, yeah, like he's he's bonding to to her. Yeah. 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 I I mean, there are those moments of like a little tiny bit of respect and love. They show a couple of them. And, and I, I think, think that's survival too. Well, and I think that's what people get attached to. And then right. they're like, see, he is loving. Yeah. He, my kid is fine. He's okay. Yeah. And that gives you that hope. And then there's just like cruelty slap the next day. You yeah. know? It's just, or even like a moment later. Yep. I wanted to just read something really quickly from sure. an article out of the Atlantic called When Your Child is a Psychopath. Um, and it reflects what we were talking about before the break and a little bit after, which is how doctors are afraid to go to this place where they're talking about this with parents. Um, and oftentimes it's a last result. I'm just going to read two quick paragraphs, but the it's called when your child is a psychopath and it's, it's out of the Atlantic and you can Google it and the whole thing will come up. But this is a quote. They consulted doctors, psychiatrists and therapists, but Samantha only grew more dangerous they had her admitted to a psychiatric hospital three times before sending her to a residential treatment program in Montana at age six. Samantha would grow out of it, one psychologist assured her parents. The problem was merely delayed empathy. Samantha was impulsive, another said, something that medication would fix. Yet another suggested that she had reactive attachment disorder, which could be ameliorated with intensive therapy. More darkly and typically in these sorts of cases, another psychologist blamed Jen and Danny, the parents, implying that Samantha was reacting to harsh and unloving parenting. In the children's mental health world, it's pretty much a terminal diagnosis, except your child's not going to die, Jen, the mother says. It's just that there's no help. She recalls walking out of the psychiatrist's office on that warm afternoon and standing on a street corner in Manhattan as pedestrians pushed past her in a blur. A feeling flooded over her, singular, unexpected, hope. 
Someone had finally acknowledged her family's plight. Perhaps she and Danny could, against the odds, find a way to help their daughter. Samantha was diagnosed with conduct disorder with callous and unemotional traits. She had all the characteristics of a budding psychopath. Yep. I can understand that. Like Kevin, they never got that. So the gaslighting just continued. And what that, what this, this mother in this movie knows to be true never gets validated right. um, until he actually goes out and kills a bunch of people, including her family. And so I can understand how someone who actually gets assessed and has access to that and has like, I want to hit this point home has mental health workers that are actually have excuse me but the balls to say you know call it that's right because a lot of times like what you described there that is not the case where there's all these situations where nobody wants to diagnose what's really true well in the quintessential she just needs to be loved more and and you guys need to look at what you're doing yeah, more socializing yeah yeah no less yeah. Yeah, yes um, yeah. <laughs> protect the people um yeah so yes hmm i guess that's that for the movie i have a couple of thoughts just like conclusionary type mm -hmm. thoughts is that a word conclusionary sure did i make it up i Doesn't like it matter it's yours i kind of like it okay i make up words all the time word. here it's FYI. a pretty word conclusionary <laughs> i like it right it's better than therapize sweet <laughs> i was gonna say catharsipize can you imagine i'm just making up words conversate now. so the thought my thought was that um Two things. One is that this movie shows like that the mother's responsibility is just as complex in this movie as it is in any of our true crime subjects. Mm -hmm. We always talk, you know, birth to death kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And we're always the families are always highly complicated. But the situations in which the person the kid is born into is always kind of complicated. And what they do as a baby can often be representative of kind of what happens later, just like with Kevin. And you really do. I mean, I do know that we concentrate more on the environmental factors because that's what we know. But I imagine with most of the people that we've talked about, there was some organicity to what it is. So this whole idea of the mother's responsible for things or the mother's to blame, which is certainly um, a part of our culture and, and, and also can be very true. It just depends. But that responsibility <laughs> is, is actually just as complex. And I think this movie does that really well. Yeah, it does. Um, showing that complexity and not giving you like black and white answers on that point, because that's what's true. There is no black and white answer. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that like, uh, I think I read this somewhere, and I'm sorry, I don't remember where I read it, but um, it might have been in that Atlantic article because I had read that too. But the idea that throughout this movie, that, that there's this last scene where they're both sitting together, and I think she finally asks him, you know, oh, why'd you do it? Yeah. <laughs> that moment. I know it's, it's try. I, I kind of, it's like, Oh, she asked him, Whoa, no. How are they going to handle this moment? Was my thought because but I love how they did, because if he gives an answer, like, Oh my God, it's not going to be real. So she asked him like, why'd you do it? Finally, this is literally the last scene of the movie. And you wonder why she asked him because, but I think it's because in the end, like he is fundamentally hers. Like this is her son. Like bad good whoever's fault it was whatever he's done like he is fundamentally her son and she just needs to know what his answer to that is and he says 
there's this big pause and this really good acting. It was really well done. And he says, I used to think I knew. Now I'm not so sure. Yeah. And in that moment, um, it's almost like because he never got the rejection, right? Mm -hmm. He never got that rejection. So he's like, wow, after all this, it didn't even work. Like she's still here. She's still here. Yeah. And so there's this moment where he, like I said, not a lot of dialogue in this movie. He literally says that line. And in how they chose to play it was, first of all, love the line, but also that there's a moment of him sort of saying, again, I have no idea. Like, again, I'm empty. Like, I thought I knew, but now I really don't. And there's just this moment of actual, you get emotion from him. Yeah, I think it's real regret and real, I think it's the only moment, one of the only moments, if not the only moment in the movie where you're like, oh, that that affected him Yeah, he, in that moment. Like that he really did, I think not, not because he's making a connection with his mom. No. I would argue not because he's making a connection or an attachment, which I think some moviegoers might interpret it as that just because mm-hmm. we want to, <laughs> but more because he doesn't know. And that's really off-putting to him that he actually doesn't know. Or there, that it wasn't even worth it yeah. in a way because. That he hasn't been rejected by everyone. Yep. She keeps showing up. Yep. Although I don't know after she gets that answer, maybe she's peace outing. Yeah. I don't know. There's no Kevin too. Thank God. <laughs> oh my God. We really need to talk about Kevin. <laughs> we really need 2021. To, we need to talk about Kevin again. <laughs> we need that's to talk the third about part. Jane this time. <laughs> um, all right. That's all I got. Yeah. Okay, cool. We're going to come back and do our, what the hell segment. We'll be right back. Hi, we're back. This is Tara Talk. This episode needs a what the hell really badly. It really does. <laughs> um, go first. You go first. This is called The Height of Dumbass. Dumbness. <laughs> Dumb- Dumbness. Oh, see. I read it as You dumbass. added the ass. He is the next one in my list of world's dumbest criminals because he crossed all the limits of insanity. This robber, who was an 18-year-old at the time named Ruben Zarate invaded a muffler shop located in Chicago. We're out of Florida, folks. Mm. And there he demanded money by showing up um, showing up a gun to the staff. So the staff gets threatened, but there's a problem. They couldn't give more money to this robber as the manager was not there and all the money was in a safe lock. And only the managers could open the safe lock. So this brilliant guy leaves his phone number saying, when the manager comes back, you guys need to call me. (laughs) But it was his bad because the staff first called the Chicago police, you know, told him this is what happened here. Um, So the robber thought it was a wise way to steal the money, but he was unknowingly um, making this mistake. The police asked the staff then to call him and say, hey, come on back. Our manager is here. Uh, We have the money for you now. Mm. And he's like, I will be right there. <laughs> and he shows up and um, yeah, he gets arrested. <laughs> okay. Dumbass. Yeah. 
You let me know when your manager's back so I can collect the rest of this money. <laughs> I actually, It's funny because I actually read that one when I was looking for it. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't pick it. I would have had to like scramble right now to find another one. That's funny. That is funny. I just saw, I remember like there was like the picture of the post-it on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> it's the picture they used. Um, okay. So mine is, and you may have read this one because maybe we're reading the same articles. Um, Carolyn, 56, felt passionately about her religion. Especially when she and her 35-year-old roommate, Daniel, were so drunk they could barely walk. They were in Georgia. So we're in Georgia, not Florida. Cartersville, Georgia Motel around 1 a.m. around Christmas 2013 when Carolyn decided to impart her wisdom about the Ten Commandments to her young companion. Apparently not understanding the commandment that says thou shalt honor someone old enough to be thy mother, young Daniel got a bit mouthy. <laughs> so what did Carolyn do? Well... She did what every morally upstanding older woman would do. She belted him in the face with her Bible. (laughs) (laughs) And unfortunately, this broke young Daniel's $150 pair of glasses. But to his credit, he did not. Uh, He observed the commandment, thou shalt not kill. So he just threw Carolyn across the room into the television. Oh, my God. Where she cut her head and hurt her foot. (laughs) Although we don't know exactly how they're related, they were both arrested under the Family Violence Act and were booked into Barstow County Jail. Yeah, it all started with God that day. It t- and a Bible. And then... <laughs> <laughs> they and then she well. hit him in the face with the Bible. Yeah, she was really trying to teach him something. And then he threw her across the room into the TV set. It sounds like when those like charismatic... Christian moments where they're like getting real very passionate. Yeah. Like filled with the spirit crying and passing out snakes come out the whole thing. Sure. Yeah. That's Pentecostal. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Whatever. Yeah. So there it is. Thanks so much uh, to for listening to us. Um, That movie is a movie that I think affected both you and I um, quite a bit. I mean, we were, both already in the profession by the time that movie came out. But um, I, I would urge anyone to see more of Lynn Ramsey's uh, films. There's actually another one of her films that I'd actually like to do an episode on that really, Which really one? highlights PTSD. Um, I'm trying to remember what it is. Uh, I've seen it. Um, I, think, I think one of the reasons it was so well done is just because you know they consulted with mental health professionals on this. It Absolutely. Was, it wasn't a, a surfaced psychopath movie. No, she's she is very much known for um, s- being able to sit in um, mental illness. <laughs> uh, it's a movie with Joaquin Phoenix from 2017 called You Were Never Really Here. Mm. Um, it's it's. It's a really interesting uh, movie on PTSD in the same style. And okay. then there was another movie that she did called M- Morvern Collar, which is, uh, she's Scottish. So mm-hmm. um, that was from 2002. That was like a film festival one that went around and it's after, it's this character after her husband's uh, suicide and then some stuff happens. Okay. So anyway, I would recommend her. I like her a lot. She casts a lot of really good actors, too. Anyway, that's our episode on We Need to Talk About Kevin. And now we really don't ever need to talk about Kevin ever again. No, we really don't. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please tune back in on Friday for our Shrink Chat show. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow. <laughs>